everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Rachel Pather, and I'm a Senior Advisor to Skybridge Capital, based in Abu Dhabi, as well as being the MC for SALT, a thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses business, technology, and politics. Now, as many of you know, SALT Talk is a series of digital interviews for some of the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do here is provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. The subject for today's talk is going to be on sovereign wealth funds and venture capital investing. And who better to discuss these topics with than Winston Ma, who's a former managing director at the China Investment Corporation, one of China's sovereign wealth funds. He spent 10 years as the MD and head of North America for the CIC and was a founding member of the CIC's private equity department and also the special investment department to direct investor. He is the author of China's Mobile Economy, The Digital Silk Road, China's AI Big Bang, and Investing in China. He also has two new books coming out this year, actually one later this week, which we'll go into more detail on later. In 2013, Winston was selected as a young global leader at the World Economic Forum. He has multiple degrees, and he has served as an adjunct professor at a number of world-class universities. As always, if you have any questions for Winston, just enter them in the Q&A section of your screen. And with that, Winston, welcome to Salt Talks. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rachel. Now, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today, Winston. Now, you are, you're an investor, you're an attorney, you're an author, and you're obviously also a professor, professor in the global digital economy. So maybe we just start by you telling me a bit more about your personal background. In 1997, I received a scholarship from NYU Law School. So I came to New York, uh, which started my uh, uh, Wall Street career, you know, first as a lawyer at the Davis Polk. And then after B school, I joined JP Morgan uh, for equity capital markets, convertibles and derivatives. Um, 2007, Barclays Capital started U.S. equity business and they hired me to, to, to start that business. And, and they also in the same year, CIC was set up to manage a portion of China's sovereign wealth, uh, uh, sovereign wealth right? The, the, the trillion dollar foreign reserve. Uh, so p- starting from the beginning of 2008, I moved back to China to become an investment professional to manage a portion of the country's wealth. Uh, between the 10 years at CIC, I also spent four years in Toronto, Canada, for CIC's North America office, you know, actually for the first time, CIC had overseas office. They picked Toronto uh, for the North America presence. So that was sort of my uh, uh, twenty years of twenty years in the capital markets. You know, ten years on Wall Street, working on global capital and the China opportunities, and then last ten years I was with CIC. That that was more like China capital and global investments, right? And, and I moved back last year to back to the capital markets. Uh, it seems, you know, life has its own way of uh, uh, circling around and it rhymes in different uh, time. No, that, kind of that's certainly true. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And so w- with over this 10 years of experience, I do want to sort of maybe take a step back and, and start with the why. So, you know, you have a great deal of experience with the sovereign wealth fund world and, your time at the, the CIC, 
Why is this yep. group of investors increasingly important for the capital market players? Yeah. No, you know, to, to put this into context, right, you know, here's a quick question, you know, who holds the power in the financial markets? You know, to, to many people, the answer probably would be the large investment banks, you know, the big asset managers and the hedge funds, uh, because they are often in the media's uh, uh, spotlight, right? But, uh, but this new group of sovereign wealth funds, sovereign funds, I would say, because this concept includes the sovereign wealth funds, includes the public pension funds, as well as the investment arms of many uh, central banks. And uh, these, these, this group of investors have huge amount of capital. You know, it is estimated that they have $30, billion, $30 trillion, actually, $30 trillion under management. So they have enormous power in the financial market. And to put this again into the context, right, you know, they are actually the enablers of the players in the uh, media every day. You know, they are, the, they are the LP investors in many of the hedge funds and they are the deal, make, they are the deal making people which, which engage the investment banks. And, and certainly they are typically the, uh, the mother of the funds for many asset, asset managers. Just, bec- just starting from their large size of capital, you know, they are super, super important to this capital markets. But, you know, they are still very little known. And that's why it is important for the capital markets to, to get to understand uh, this group. Interesting. And, we, and yeah. last time I saw you was actually in Austin in February yeah. and we were at a Health and Wealth Fund conference. You know, since yeah. then I pretty much just sat here in my apartment and you've actually gone and written two books. Yeah. And one of them is, is about this digital economy, uh, the hunt for unicorns, how sovereign right. funds are reshaping investment in the digital economy. Can you right. tell me more what we can expect from this and how that 30 trillion of investment capital plays yep. into the digital economy? Sure, sure. You know, the, the, the big background of this is, you know, uh, the, these sovereign funds used to be very passive and behind the scene. And in recent years, they become many, uh, become much more active and direct in the capital markets. And, uh, and they started with uh, uh, the traditional asset classes like infrastructures or real estate or the, uh, the general P industries. And, and in more recent years, they, they, they made, made this uh, uh, leap forward into the venture investing, which used to be viewed as drastically different from institutional investing, right? Uh, because uh, uh, venture investing is very specialized and it tends to be very uh, early stage and small ticket size and they are uh, they, they, they take times and, and they are a uh, uh, high risk high return uh, which is very different from the typical risk profile right uh, that the uh, institutional investors look for um, so so it's in this kind of context uh, we, we, we we come to see the sovereign funds become the new powerful venture capitalists uh, and, and they naturally bring change to the uh, traditional play of venture investing and Silicon Valley. So the, the way to, to think about their difference is in the following ways. You know, first, obviously, the large size. You know, they, they have trillions of dollars uh, in, uh, under management, you know, just individually, right, for some largest players. So, they're in, uh, so their average equity check is very large. Uh, very different from the typical VC investment. And so, 
Secondly, they are much more long-term, fewer IPO of tech companies comparing to uh, many years ago, right? And there's a third aspect is, you know, they, they are called sovereign investors. You know, they, so they inevitably, they have this government connections. So, uh, so in the middle of this geopolitical tensions around tech competition, inevitably, they are caught up in the global tensions, which is also different from a typical VC fund. Yeah. So actually, let's pick up on each of those points that you just mentioned. The first one mm-hmm. being about the large ticket size. You know, I'm exactly. based in Abu Dhabi. And if you look at the SoftBank Vision Fund, right, $100 exactly. billion, $60 billion from two Middle Eastern investors. So can you, can you elaborate a bit more on actually how the sovereign wealth funds access this venture capital and maybe also specifically on how the Vision Fund has impacted this landscape. Yeah, you know, the, the Vision Fund is, is a great example of this uh, big ticket size of the sovereign funds because the, the, the overall theme of Vision Fund can be summarized by two words, right? Think big. I think that's sort of the motto from Masayoshi-san, think big. Um, so from the... From the uh, unicorn side, I think that means, you know, the, 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 the startup must, you know, think big in, in terms of develop, develop their business and become the leader, leading company in their respective sector, right? I think that's what Masayoshi-san uh, uh, was preaching. Uh, and then from correspondingly from the investment perspective, that means uh, they are ready to write a very big check, Right. Uh, so in, in, a, in a sense, they are not only the unicorn hunters, but they also the, can be viewed as unicorn feeders. You know, yeah. you know, obviously, Vision Fund fits in that bill, but you know, a lot of other sovereign funds are also in that category, right? Uh, the, the best example of that probably is Ant uh, Financial, uh, the, the upcoming IPO of the fintech arm of uh, Alibaba. Now, they, of course, they're looking for a 200 billion plus valuation for IPO, that's a large number. But even before this IPO, two years ago, when they had the private round of financing, they got to, 100, they got to 150 billion valuation. To a large extent, thanks to many sovereign funds investing uh, during that, that round, you know, which, which includes the uh, Singapore sovereign funds of Tamasic and the GIC, and, and it's even some uh, less known sovereign funds like the uh, Malaysia's Kazana, uh, and also uh, guys from the pension world, such as CPPIB, Canadian Pensions. Um, and of course, you know, uh, before that 150 billion round, CIC and China Social Security Fund, you know, and, and other uh, sovereign investment vehicles of China were already investors in anti-financial years ago, right? So, so these so these uh, uh, big ticket investments from the sovereign investors definitely created these you know, un- unprecedented valuation of unicorns. So, so that's, 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 the, uh, the, that's the think big side, right? And the, 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 course, the, course, the, the, the consequence is now we have too many of the unicorns. There's a 2013 when the word unicorn was created, um, there were 38 unicorns across the world. And by 2020, actually, by the data end of 2019, globally, there are more than 400 unicorns. That, that, that means, you know, during the seven, eight years, seven years, actually, uh, we had tenfold increase of the number of unicorns 
And I would say this think big from sovereign funds actually is a major reason for that. And don't you think yeah. that's almost self-perpetuating as well, yeah. right? Because these unicorns are often the market leaders and yeah. they're extremely well capitalized. So it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in that sort of sense. Like you give a, a startup, you know, yeah. $500 million to build their business, they're going to crush the competition if they have similar teams and, and other resources. I, I think the word similar is, is the key. Rachel, because uh, in, in some way, you know, uh, unicorns are not hunted, they're manufactured. You know, when, once, people see, when, once people see the formula of wild two unicorns, actually a, a lot of smart people begin to industrialize that manufacturing chain of unicorns, right? It, you know, it's not only in Silicon Valley, but also in China. And it's not only China and the US, but also in other innovation hubs in the world, such as India, right? Uh, the, the typical ingredients of, uh, of a unicorn is online service, uh, based on uh, online service on internet platforms, promoted by social media, right? And uh, partnership with uh, uh, existing giants who have large user traffic. And of course, on top of that, you know, as, as you mentioned, right, is, is, is taking the venture money and subsidize users to generate more traffic and attention, right? Uh, so, so th this is a time of uh, this is a time to uh, time to reflect. Actually, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, this global downturn, this pandemic, right, uh, and this global tensions. You know, all, all the all the all the uh, headwinds, you know, that are uh, ravaging the herd. You know, uh, when you, when you take a closer look at the at the herd, uh, some are pretty troublesome. You know, so some already took on too much fat. You know, they cannot race. You know, some are built for show, not for the race. Uh, and some, some, some are even worse. You know, so, you know they, they, they already got sick, you know, from their own issues. Like, like we work, that kind of situation, right? So you need, yeah. like, you, you have to kind of see a doctor. Uh, so, so this is a very interesting time to revisit this herd. Yeah, I and think for that's the a great funds, point. That means they have to be uh, kind of active investor even more quickly to take on the uh, take on the uh, unicorns more more directly and, and and in a more involved way. Yeah, I think that's a great point on the case mm. studies. And actually, I'd love to dive a bit deeper into yeah. WeWork later on um, and how maybe yeah. excess capital sort of played into that equation. But one of the points you mentioned was this long term investment piece Capital. and we actually had Rustin who who I know that you know you're friends yeah. with as well from the Tesco pension fund and he sure. was on yesterday talking about how countries can and should use their their wealth to invest more domestically and potentially especially given yeah. you know the current pandemic impacting local economies yeah how do you see that playing out and and what are your views on investing in in the hometown and inflation Yes, you know, that, that's a great, great point, you know, very relevant in the uh, post-COVID, you know, global economic recovery. Uh, you know, the background of this is, you know, even before pandemic, uh, a lot of the sovereign funds already have multiple objectives. You know, uh, on one hand, they seek financial returns. Uh, at the same time, they also try to use their investments to help their domestic economic development. Um, 
and, and actually the Middle East guys uh, you mentioned are the probably the best examples. You know, certainly, uh, you know, when they put a 60 billion in Vision Fund, uh, they're not only looking for financial investments, right? But also they want to transform their uh, ec economies from fossil fuel based into more innovation based economy, right? Um, and we're seeing more and more like this, you know, for example, in Africa, right? You, you see more sovereign funds are be being, they are being uh, created uh, to better manage their resource money and use them to finance their economic transformation, especially the digital transformation, right? So, so I think the, the way we, we, we put this into, into historical context, it can be, can be like this. You know, during the last, you know, after the last financial crisis, 2008, lots of countries uh, have used uh, sovereign funds or mobilized sovereign funds uh, to, to invest in infrastructure as a catalyst for economic recovery, right? And, and a ten, uh, let's say 12 years later, 2020, you know, for the post-COVID recovery, it's, it's quite natural that the countries would do similar things, but I think they will focus more on the digital ecosystem, digital economy ecosystem and the digital infrastructure. You know, obviously the world is still lack of, you know, more toll roads and uh, highways and uh, uh, utility grid, right? Uh, but at the same time, you know, to be competitive in the, in the upcoming digital economy, uh, the, the, the emerging markets, I would argue, have even more important need for more digital infrastructures, you know, data centers, uh, fiber connectivities, and even just the basic internet con connectivities so that uh, globally, you know, the, uh, about the 3 billion people who do not have the uh, internet connectivities can be part of the digital economy ecosystem. You know, that can bring some growth catalyst to the world economy. So I can imagine, you know, just like, you know, during, uh, after, during the last crisis, you know, the, uh, the government funds have used uh, uh, sovereign capital to, to invest in infrastructure to promote growth. Now we, we may see more sovereign funds putting money into digital economy uh, as the new growth engine uh, post-COVID. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And yeah. as, you, as you mentioned, we are seeing that in the, the Middle East particularly as well. And, yeah. you know, you, you place a lot of emphasis on this word sovereign, and obviously they are representing, mm. you know, 100% owned by sovereign nations. Yeah. How do you see this yeah. tension? Because we spoke about China, US. You know, tech investment is also kind of at the forefront of the geopolitical battlefield right. as well. Mm -hmm. So could you maybe explain how that technology battle sort of plays into that geopolitical tension? Yes, yes. You know, the, 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 the technology is, is, is the front line of everything these days, right? And it's, so it's no exception for the sovereign funds. But, you know, to, to some extent, it's, it's, it's kind of just a coincidence of time. Um, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it played out in the broader context. What I mean by this is, you know, the, uh, the sovereign funds are obviously becoming active investors and direct investors in technology. Uh, so from the historical context, it's a natural extension, right? You know, they, 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 you know, they started as passive investor and they become direct investors in the asset classes they're familiar with, like infrastructure and real estate. And gradually, 
they 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 extend into into every sectors they they're interested so they become this new venture capitalist so this, so this is so the historical context uh, but uh, you know the, uh, uh, the 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 new let's say the current the, the current attention is you know we were just talking about the hist historical development but you know the, the current attention is that technology is viewed as uh, strategic strategic assets of a country, right? You know, like the data, like advanced technology, you know, these are viewed as strategic assets and even national security uh, by all nations, right? It's, so, so it's just interesting to see this collision, you know, at a time that all the sovereign funds are becoming actively in, invested in, in, the, uh, in the tech sector. And they recognize that tech investments can be a useful tool for their own economic development. On the on the other hand, right, you know, the, the, the host countries, you know, the countries that are receiving the capital investment are become more alert or, or become more conscious of the value of, 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 of technology. And they are increasing their regulations uh, and uh, scrutiny, right, of such foreign investments. You know, I think that's sort of the context of this collision we're seeing today. I guess, I mean, TikTok and the current sort of d debates in the US yeah. is a great example of that, that data and the, uh, the digital oh, yeah. information, the battle there. Exactly, exactly. Um, you, know, you know, TikTok probably the, the best example of this. Uh, you know, actually, it's, a, it's a, you know, not surprising to, to you. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a main case. For, for my upcoming book, right? You know, the, the, you know, titled The Hunt for Unicorn, How Sovereign Investments Change the, change the Future of Digital Economy. So what I, what I meant by that is uh, TikTok represents a very important case study for all the stakeholders in this. Uh, number one, actually, first of all, you know, it's a very positive story because uh, uh, TikTok represents a growth story during pandemic, right? Uh, because, because of the pandemic, actually TikTok, you know, during the first half of 2020 was the second most downloaded app in the world. And of course, you know, what's the number one, right? It's a Zoom. Uh, so after Zoom, TikTok was most, mostly downloaded. Uh, so, so it shows you that uh, even with the pandemic, there are still growth areas, right? So there are still new opportunities coming up, which means which means this hunt for unicorn story will continue. So, so that's, that's number one, you know, very positive. Uh, you know, the, the second aspect of this uniqueness of the TikTok case is, is that it may uh, give us useful reference in terms of cross-border data management. Because except for the U.S. company Apple, TikTok and its parent company, ByteDance, is the only company in the world that has large number of users in both US and China. Uh, they, they have uh, Chinese users and US users uh, in, in respective territory, you know, each with more than 100 millions, uh, which, is, which is unique actually. You know. uh, um, so, so this is the first case of governments to work out a scheme that can handle a company that has data in different countries. 
you know, like we, you know, Google hasn't, Google does not have a presence in China. So Google doesn't have this issue. Uh, Facebook is not in China. Facebook doesn't have the issue. Alibaba is very big in China, but Alibaba is not very big in the US, right? Uh, but, you know, TikTok and ByteDance is, is unique in the sense that it has users in both countries. And, and what, what, no matter uh, what kind of the term sheet come out, uh, it will be a very useful reference to, to understand how government's gonna, gonna work out. And then the third aspect of the TikTok case is, you know, it, there's, there's a real money on the line, right? Because if there's no solution, if there's no solution, then right now the US, US is saying, you know, you, you, must sell, you must sell TikTok to US companies because it's national security of the US, right? And China is saying, we, we're, gonna manage, we're gonna manage the sale of the algorithm because this is the national security of China, right? Um, so, so if so, I tell you, right, as a former you know deal lawyer, bank investor, it's not very easy to please please two governments at the same time, right? So, so if you don't have a good term sheet, if you don't have a solution, then TikTok must be shut down, and then the fifty billion valuation people put to TikTok will will, will go just like that, you know. So. So there's a real money on the line, you know, in the context of the TikTok case. Do you actually see that as a risk that it could just be shut down if they can't come to a conclusion? Yeah, because if you, if you don't have a solution, if you don't have a solution, you know, like uh, how do you, you know, who, 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 who eventually holds the algorithm and, uh, and who will uh, uh, manage and, uh, and uh, control the user data? Right, and and to to just to 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 highlight the complexity, you know, remind you that the algorithm has been trained by data from both sides. So the so in a sense, the the, the China algorithm was trained by the U.S. user data. So so it's not very easy to to come up with a a, a rationale to divide this thing up. You know, we may need uh, King Solomon to give us some wisdom about this. <laughs> no, for sure. And I, I guess, as you say, it's a very interesting case study because normally when you look at China and the US digital economy, it's quite bifurcated, right? So you have Uber, you have yeah. you have you know, um, Amazon, you have Alibaba, and I guess this is a true case that overlaps. Yeah. I, I also want to briefly touch on, because you know, you've been looking at this area for a while, you published China's mobile economy uh, a few years ago, and that looked at sort of the world-changing uh, digital transformation in China back then. Why was right. this an inflection point uh, on the internet in China? And yep. maybe also talk about how today's geopolitical tensions are playing into that. Yeah, sure. You know, the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the book China's Mobile Economy was written in 2016, published in 2016. You know, and that was sort of the, uh, the, the, the fast growth time of China's mobile internet. You know, that was a, certainly a, a huge inflection point for China's internet because overnight people go mobile, right? So, so that's, the, you know, that, that's the beginning of the, this mobile-only age. Uh, what I mean mobile-only, mean, uh, I mean for many Chinese people, their first time to be connected to the internet is the time they have a smartphone. They never had a PC. You know, they never had, had a landline phone. Uh, but but with the smartphone, all of a sudden they have a number, they have a phone, and also they have the internet. Um, 
And that's a very, uh, uh, that's a very big thing, you know, because in just a few years, China became this largest mobile internet population in the world, you know, with more than 900 million people. You know, that's almost like the combined population of the U.S. and Europe, right? So that's a, that's a huge, huge uh, 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 growth uh, during just uh, a few years. Now, the, 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 uh, the development of the internet industry of that time can be, can be uh, referred to as copied to China. C2C, copy to China, uh, which means uh, the first generation of Chinese tech companies had their start as copycat versions of Western size. You know, uh, so for example, Alibaba was viewed as the uh, Chinese version of uh, uh, eBay at the very beginning, Alibaba, you know, uh, and then, you know, it added, added Alipay. So you say, oh, you know, that's uh, eBay plus PayPal, right? Um, or Weibo, you know, it, it was viewed as Chinese version of Twitter, and a Tencent, you know, maybe viewed as Chinese version of uh, a Facebook plus Messenger, right? Uh, you know, that's the general perception during that time, right? Um, now, what's interesting is, you know, after this period of growth, uh, China is China's innovation ecosystem is entering is has entered into the second phase. You know, this phase, uh, China, in many areas, actually China has become a, a trend setter, trend setter instead of a trend follower in the mobile economy. You know, so for example, TikTok is a very good example, right? You know, it, it started this, uh, uh, this phenomenon of uh, short video, and then Facebook is adding similar features to its empire, right? So, so this, this phase, you can, you can refer to two China copy, two CC, right? Um, and, and, and of course, you know, the, the short video is just, just for the teenagers, but the, uh, the, the, the adult version of this is, the adult versions of this is, you know, uh, during the last couple of years, you know, China was mostly doing the catch up uh, relating to smartphones and the 4G network and, in, and the mobile internet economy. But, you know, with, with, uh, with, with last few years of development, China has become a a, a, a equally interesting innovation center, just like the Silicon Valley of the U.S., right? Um, so what, what do you see is, you know, the, uh, the, the big data from the uh, 900 million users uh, become the base for AI and big data analytics. The, uh, uh, the, 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 the large internet platforms in China become the uh, infrastructure for next generation startups, you know, and of course, you know, the, uh, during that process, uh, 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 millions of college students uh, become entrepreneurs, uh, college graduates, you know, graduates. So, so I think, you know, the, in summary, essentially what we're seeing is, you know, during the 4G, the age of 4G and the smartphone, China had proved its catch up, you know. And now as we enter into the age of 5G, China is becoming a equally important innovation centers. And in many areas, China is, competing with the U.S. head-to-head. And, and to your question about geopolitical tension context, you know, I think that's the link to the geopolitical tensions. Because you know, years ago, it was a follower. Now it is a competitor. Yeah, that's a great point. Less likely to be threatened by someone if they're just following what you're doing. And actually, we, we have a number of audience have questions that have come in, and they're all quite 
heavy, meaty questions, so I am going to go to them so yeah. we have time. Um, so, yes. Ken, thank you, as always, for your question, Ken. Um, he's asked, what do you think? So we had Kai Fu Lee on giving his perspective that China and the Western market are developing bifurcated internet standards. And, you know, are there different approaches to, say, the development of AI? And maybe you could also talk about what you mentioned about how China's market size plays into that and does that maybe give them an advantage uh, in this area with, with 900 or, or over a billion users? Yes. Yes, you know, uh, specifically on AI, right? You know, that I think what's what's really makes China different is uh, the, the government come up with a comprehensive uh, policy and agenda to 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 to, to set for its uh, uh, development phase, uh, development path. You know, the 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 the, um, the trigger point was 2017. You know, when uh, Google's uh, AI machine. Uh, beat the Chinese player in the Go chess game, which proved that AI is way, way, let's say, smarter than human players, right? And that sort of triggered China's rush into AI. And, you know, of course, you know, every country is talking about AI. Uh, but what's really unique about China is, it, you know, this, it comes from the central government uh, as well as the uh, private sectors. You know, uh, at the central government level, uh, since we're talking about sovereign funds today, you know, the, what's, what's remarkable is, uh, it came up with a a, a, a top-level kind of vision that by 2030, by 2030, you know, in just like 12 years from from that game, uh, China will become the, the 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 world's leading AI superpower, right? And and then from there on, you know, the, the different ministries come up with different uh, uh, kind of industry guidelines. So, so for example, the uh, the NDRC uh, come up with uh, rules relating to AI champions, you know, setting up standards for uh, for different AI industries. For example, uh, autonomous vehicles, or the Education Ministry will come up uh, come up come up with guidelines. Setting up, uh, uh, I think, the plan was to have uh, more than one hundred majors on AI at the different universities. So on and so forth, right? So, so what's really set China apart is, is this uh, government efforts and you know the government vision and the government resources uh, to, to to be put into this uh, this effort. And of course, the uh, the, uh, uh, the, the 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 size of the market, you know, nine hundred million users uh, united by the same language, same culture, and the same mobile payment means a lot of activities on internet platform every day, which, which left tremendous amount of data very, and very organized data uh, on, on these inter, internet platforms that can be used to train AI algorithm, right? Uh, so, so to some extent, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the flexible policy, flexible regulation on, on, on data is also a helpful fact, fact during the early years of AI. Yeah, and we actually yeah. have a, another audience question, which is kind of, you know, builds on these these internet giants in, in China. Mm -hmm. um, Agska Alam said, it would be great to get your thoughts on the future of Tencent and Alibaba, given that they've seemed to extend their reach, you know, into asset management, media, logistics, yeah. and they've also taken stakes in other 
companies and they're quite forward-looking themselves as venture capital investors. So how do you see these yeah. companies evolving? So I, I think to, to answer this question, you know, I, I will start by saying, you know, if there's anything that's in agreement by U.S. and the, and the China governments, it, it, it's in the regulation of the big tech. You know, there, there's not too many things that China and the U.S. governments are agreeing these days, uh, but it seems like they have pretty much a consensus on regulating the big tech, right? Uh, so for, actually, let's use Interfinancial for the first example, right? You know, in, for, for Interfinancial, it, it's the... Uh, it's the, it's the financial arm of Alibaba. And of course, you know, we all know, right, uh, as we are all in the financial market, we all know the financial sector is always heavily regulated. Uh, and in the, in the early years, you know, as I mentioned earlier, right, China takes more flexible approach to regulation. So in the early years, you know, they, uh, uh, Alibaba enjoys uh, super, super growth, you know, because there's very relaxed environment. Uh, but as we speak, you know, uh, in 2020, we start seeing more and more uh, regulation and uh, uh, more and more regulation of this sector and also more and more risk alert actually from the regulators. Uh, so, 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 for example, uh, uh, the China Central Bank is, is starts to warn about the system, systemic risk of, uh, of anti-financial lending platform. Right, uh, because you, when when they use internet data, they, they can do remote lending without the need of collateral. Uh, so this may be a uh, maybe a risk to the financial system, according to the central bank. Right, and of course, uh, the you know uh, central bank plus the Ministry of Commerce, you know, they they are looking at the antitrust issue of, of uh, anti financial and related you know the related internet system, and uh, and most recently you know very funny during the IPO right. You know, the, the China securities regulators actually took on Ant because uh, Ant used the, the mutual funds on their own platform to sell their IPO shares, you know, which triggered China SEC's uh, uh, intense review, you know. Um, so, so you can see, you know, the, the, these regulations are going up. And of course, in the, in the U.S., you also see antitrust pressure on these Internet giants uh, going up. In, uh, but and, and also you have this geopolitical tension related uh, uh, big de- big tech review, uh, big tech regulation, right? Uh, because uh, financial entry, uh, according to media reports the last couple of days, uh, is 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 being watched by U.S. Uh, as a tar- as a potential target for uh, for crackdown in the in the U.S. Um, so so I think you know the, the probably the most pract- pragmatic or practical way to to uh, to view to to think about the prospect of, of guys like uh, uh, alibaba and financial and tencent is to have a realistic uh, uh prediction of their future growth you know you know they, yeah. they will they, they will still have growth because their the momentum is just tremendous uh, but the regulators are taking taking our actions so so we should have more uh, uh let's say a uh, realistic projection for their future growth. Yeah, no, that's um, yeah. that's a great point. And we've actually had a couple of questions coming in. I know we haven't even touched on this yet, and it is quite a big topic, but on the China's uh, One Belt, One Road initiative, yeah. how do you think, um, like, what's the long-term perspective um, by the sovereign wealth funds 
sort of efforts um, to benefit societies such as China's um, investments for the One Belt, One Road, I guess, in addition to the physical infrastructure and the digital mm -hmm. infrastructure. And we've also had a question saying, how important will sovereign wealth funds be in driving securitization of, you know, the now um, almost 800 billion in, um, in One Belt, One Road loans? Yeah, sorry, yeah, securitization of uh, 800 million uh, projects? A billion of the, um, of the loans associated with the One Belt, One Road. Interesting, yeah. No, honestly, I haven't really put too much thought about this uh, securitization thing. Uh, the, you know, the, because in, in general, right, you know, when you have a sovereign credit, credit uh, you, don't, you don't have to worry too much of that. Um, but I think, you know, the, uh, the, the, the potential solution of this uh, credit issue along along a one belt one road projects actually can may come from the sovereign wealth funds of those local countries you know what i mean by that is um the the, the local sovereign wealth funds can be a great partner uh, for china capital with respect to one belt one road projects in those countries um because when they are part of the game uh, they they bring the local credit into the mix, and they may even sort of uh, you know use this credit support to engage more institutional investors into the mix. You know, more capital markets institutional investors into the mix. Uh, that that may provide a, a a better solution. You know, to the uh, to the credit issue. I, I, um, and I and I think you know that going forward, uh, we may see more digital belt road. Uh, and actually, the term for that is digital Silk Road, you know, this uh, digital prong of one belt to one road, um, which, which means down the road, we may, we, we may see more uh, nimble investments. You know, of course, you will, you will have, still have similar infrastructure projects, let's say, you know, internet, internet connectivity infrastructures, right? Uh, or, or the, or the uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the smartphone network um, or, or the uh, satellite towers and so forth. But, you know, the, there will be more investments, let's say, in the, uh, in the ecosystem. Let's say mobile payment, right? Uh, let, let, let's say e-commerce platforms so on and so forth, which, which means, you know, they are not necessarily as capital intensive as the traditional belt of road that, that people relate to, right? Mm. Because, uh, yeah, you know, like most of the time, people, people relate belt of road into toll roads, highways, and uh, state, you know, like a state and, uh, you know, utility grade type of infrastructures, right? But, you know, in the, going forward in the digital economy, the, the, the digital economy ecosystem, you know, the, 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 the kind of like soft connectivity is just as important. And we may see like a more kind of a private equity type of investment as compared to the traditional infrastructure investments. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Digital mm. And, mm. and physical infrastructure. We are over time, but I did want to just make sure I answered those audience questions, although we do still have some outstanding time. Sorry about that. But I know we've spoken, you know, a bit today about geopolitical tension and your your upcoming book is actually called The Digital War. But I do always like to end on a, more of an optimistic note. So maybe you should <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, talk, talk, a, talk a bit more about, about what we can hope for, even though 
even though the title of your book is, is the Digital yeah. War. You know, you know, even though, even though the, uh, the, you know, the, my other book is titled The Digital War, How China's Tech Power Shapes the Future of AI, Blockchain, and the Cyberspace. You know, I, I certainly think that the interconnectivity uh, of, of the countries, you know, not only in the digital side space, but also in the, in, in the kind of real economy, uh, will still keep us working together and find the synergies. And, and again, you know, if, you, if we look at the uh, IPO of Ant Financial as an example, you know, certainly they have existing investors from all over the world. And for the IPO, guess who the underwriters? It, you know, they are the Wall Street investment banks, right? Uh, and uh, for lots of the distribution, I, I, will, I can bet you that a lot will go to U.S. institutional investors, even though they, are list, they will be listed in Hong Kong and uh, Shanghai, right? Not NASDAQ, partly because of the tension. But, you know, you can still see different levels of connectivities uh, between the two countries. So, so I, I'm still positive. Well, Winston, people are always keen to collaborate when there's, uh, there's commercial upside. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Money matters. Yeah, quite right. Well, we are we are actually not out of time. We are slightly over time, but I just wanted to thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always and really appreciate you giving up your time to speak to us all today. Yes, thank you very much, Rachel. Thanks for having me on the Salt Talk. <laughs>